Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. I'm Dave Sulecki. And I'm Dale Spangler. And this week we have RacerX publisher Scott Wallenberg. This week's weekend watch is the Paris Supercross, a historic race held in Paris, France for many years and was back for 2021 after missing 2020 due to COVID. And this year's race was held in the Paris La Defense Arena. Just to give you a little bit of background on this race, the race was originally held in the Paris Bercy Stadium back in the 90s. And I was lucky enough to attend one of these races in 1998. And it was just an absolutely electric atmosphere. The French crowd was lively with air horns and they had chainsaws with the bars and the chains removed. And so it was just an absolutely electric crowd. And the last time it was held there was won by American Jake Weimer. That was way back in 2012. Seemed like the Marvin Muscan show at this race swept all three of the main events, took the Super Bowl to take the King of Paris title. Yeah, he's uh, he's got the hot hand right now, and all message boards are saying that he looks very, very good going into uh, Supercross. So this race doesn't count for anything. It's it's just a show, but I think it showed the world that Muscan is back. Um, injuries are behind him, and he's healthy. And he just looks solid all weekend. Him and Sobrius going at it, bringing home second. So you got French riders in first and second. Just really good battling on the track. I don't know if you saw that third moto with uh, Sobrius and Brayton going back and forth. And Brayton tried to block past him and got punted. Ended up giving up a position to none other than Antonio Cairoli. Yeah, that was awesome. It was so cool to see Cairoli put it on the podium in that third main event. But I have to say, to go back, man, Sibiras was just unbelievably solid all weekend long at that race. His 3-2-2 scores put him second place on the podiums. Like you said, a, a French 1-2 sweep with Brayton uh, grabbing third. Speaking of Frenchmen, though, did you happen to see the crash? Unbelievable Roman Febra. It looked like he cased the jump before the big triple on the track and was basically hit the eject button off the triple Landed on the face of the third jump, and unfortunately, from what I've been reading, looked like he had a tib-fib fracture, and he's already had surgery. So hopefully that doesn't affect his MotoGP or his MXGP debut, which starts a little earlier this year in February. So uh, that's going to make his offseason a little tougher. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you go back a couple of weeks and he was in contention for the 450 class championship in the in the world championship. So sad to see. It was a very Kenny Roxon type crash because, like you said, he had kind of fell out of the sky. But it does look like he's going to be OK. He just has to recover. He's got 90 days to pull that together because the first event is February 20th, 2022. And then some other notable finishes. I saw Justin Bogle on his new Suzuki ride uh, in fourth overall for the weekend and then chad reed and fifth man chad reed is just ageless as we talked about before uh he may might not have put it on the box but wow i mean to build is a step in with uh current mxgp and supercross racers and you know finishing the top five was pretty impressive yes sir definitely and uh you know for an event that really doesn't count for points or anything it definitely feeds our need for some you know some racing between uh the end of uh, MXGP and Supercross, which kicks off soon. So it's great to see. Always a fun event to watch. Good to see that uh, most of the riders came out healthy and kind of sets the stage for Supercross next year. This week's Industry Spotlight We want to talk about motorcycle racing and performance-enhancing substances. 
Now this was once kind of a hot button topic in racing, specifically motocross and supercross, where a couple top riders racing careers were severely impacted by this fact. And seemingly it's quieter subject now more recently, but there are testing and screening. It continues to happen in racing as a way to certify racers are not gaining an advantage over their competitors. Between the USADA and the WADA, the ground rules and procedures, as well as the penalties are clearly spelled out for competitors across the US. This includes updating everyone on the most current test procedures, recommended practices, and an up-to-date listing of all banned substances. Together with the racing sponsors, these organizations are working to educate racers and race teams so there are no uncertain terms regarding substances and the impact of abuse. All racers that compete at the professional level have all of the tools needed to avoid a negative impact that substances could bring to their careers. Credit motorcycle racing for bringing this to the forefront and taking this subject on and working to help everyone involved understand the landscape. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. This week's Moment in Moto History concerns racing and retirement. Zach Osborne, two-time AMA motocross champion, two-time AMA supercross champion, and former MXGP competitor, has officially announced his retirement from professional racing. Although a sad day for the racing community, Zach has been suffering from nagging past injuries and decided the time was right to announce his retirement. And he looks forward to spending more time with his young family. Zach joins many others this year that have dropped their last gate, including Antonio Cairoli, Kevin Stribos, Arnaud Tonis, and Sean Simpson, to name a few. Every professional racer reaches this point eventually, and we'd like to give Zach a big pit pass moto hats off for a long and successful racing career. Zach has always been one of the most determined and gritty racers in motocross and also one of the nicest. Hopefully, we'll see him return in 2022 in a new role as a rider coach, team manager, or other behind-the-scenes position. Wherever he ends up, congrats to Zach Osborne on an amazing career. Scott Wallenberg, welcome to Pit Pass Moto. Thanks for coming on today. What's new in the publishing world for you and with the RacerX Group? Oh, wow. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on the show. I enjoy it. In fact, I was listening to Scott Bukaitis, a fellow industry guy, a little bit earlier today. What's happening in moto? Everything is happening in moto right now. It's a renaissance. And I don't think people realize what's happened in the last year and a half with people getting back into going outdoors, obviously. But the biggest classes right now are 50 classes in 60s in motocross and we've been wanting to have where are the new riders going to come from where are the new riders going to come from we need to have this initiative that initiative well they're out there now and 
we actually, we've hired someone. She is a former Canadian motocross champ, a Loretta Lynn's champ. She lives in Alabama. Her family owns three motocross tracks. And she tells us the 50s, they had to build separate tracks. These kids are just showing up, brand new PWs. They just stepped off of Stasics. It's just been amazing. So for all of us in the industry, we have to be we have to be aware of these new riders. We have to cater to them, help them along. They're not jaded yet by brands and so forth. So it's a wide open opportunity for our industry to embrace this new group that should stick with the sport for many years to come. Dale, I'm sure you know from your own experience when when you drank the motocross Kool-Aid, did it ever leave? No, nope, it was over. I, I went to my first motocross November 2nd, dating myself here, 1969. It was an interam race with all the Swedish guys and the Czech guys and the internationals. And I'd never been to a motocross before. We'd been to flat track, TT, and that. But I was gobsmacked, as they say. I told my dad, this is what I want to do. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. So then it started. I had a little Honda 50. And we went out to watch a race that happened to be canceled. And my dad's riding around on his street bike on the motocross track. <laughs> and it, and it, the, uh, a, farm, a guy comes up in a pickup truck and goes, hey, this is my land. What are you doing? My dad goes, well, nobody was here. We thought it was okay to ride. He goes, well, you can ride here, but it's going to cost you two bucks. So <laughs> uh, my dad goes, really? Can we come again for $2? Absolutely. So we brought all the little bikes, and that's kind of the first time I rode around on what you could even call a track. It was more of a rough, rough scrambles thing, but that was it. That was it. I was addicted to motocross. I know I went off the path of Racer X right now, but just to kind of <laughs> give you an idea. A little bit of a background there. So for Racer X, which very humble beginnings, if you know the story of Davy Coombs and putting it together in the basement. And also, I think Kinko's was their first production house to start with. And um, Davy said everything that they did, uh, Davy, who was a Davy Coombs, who was a great racer himself, raced for KTM. 125 class, went to Europe, did some board cross and some other types of European events for them. And then he had uh, not his own fault, but a car accident. And that narrow window of being a factory rider went away. And his father said, well, I know you like to take pictures and that. Let's uh, get you enrolled in journalism school classes at uh, WV. and then. It started doing a local paper for District 6. I think it was just called the Racing Paper. Back when it was a newspaper only, right? Only covering District 6. And then he got the idea of expanding it. The name was still the, the Racing Paper. And then he said, you know, everything my parents do has an X in it. I kind of like that idea. And so then it became Racer X and started covering more events than just the region and it went along and if you remember those paper you know the evil Knievel stories and all these crazy things that they did with him and brian and julie were the first three employees they were fellow students put it together and the industry just loved it 
I was working at the time for motocross action and dirt bike, but I was friends with Davy's parents. Uh, Davy's dad was a very, very talented bass player. And we actually did some gigs together for the industry and friends with them. And then Davy said, oh, I'm, I want to take my, my paper and turn it into a glossy magazine. And I said, oh boy, Davy, <laughs> that is a big arena that you're jumping into. I mean, the paper's one thing and you can get away with a lot of uh, crazy stuff. But now if you're going to go, I said, what's your idea? He goes, People Magazine for motocross, basically. The personality side of the sport, not bike tests, not product evaluations. That won't be the major thrust of it. It'll be personality and the teams and the riders, the mechanics and their friends and girlfriends and team managers and things like that. And uh, I go, whoa, well, you're up against some stiff competition, not including where I work. And we've been friends, but but you do have a premise. And that's important because if it's another California test-based magazine like Dirt Rider, Dirt Bike, MXA, and what have you, I said, I, that's not going to fly. So then now it costs money to start a magazine and get it printed on a big press with a big printing company, right? And so Davey went on a trip to the West Coast to talk to some big companies to try and get seed money to start the magazine. And he went to Fox and No Fear and CTI Knee Braces and Oakley. And they all said, great idea, Davey, but we're not, we're not investing. We'll help you. We'll buy some ads and things like that. But so Davey kind of went, had to go back home and his, his parents believed in his dream and helped finance that first issue and showed up at the indie trade show in 1998. And I said, son of a gun, he did it. And it was great. And people liked it. And wouldn't you know it, a year later, I'm, uh, I'm part of that team. Scott, you you touched on a couple things during that, and that uh, to me was the booms of motorcycling. You came up in the first boom of motorcycling, the '60s into the '70s, and right. you talked about Davy in the paper. The '80s into the '90s was another boom, and now we're experiencing another one today, as you mentioned with the mini riders, which is you know that's our future addressable market, as they say, right? You've got these young guys coming into the sport, and in 10, 15 years, they're still going to be in it. Right, right. It, even if if 10, 15, 20% of all these new guys stay with the sport, we're going to have a strong boomlet. And I don't see why they wouldn't. I mean, once you've made that investment and your family's behind it and so forth, you just keep riding. It's fun to do. Speaking of that first boom, Scott, I found a picture of you on the internet from Maplehurst, Illinois, October yes. 1975. Talk about that experience being a test rider for a certain oh. American-made motorcycle. <laughs> okay, well, let's uh, go back a couple of years. Um, at the local tracks, a couple of guys that worked for Harley-Davidson, a guy named Ken Johnson, showed up with a, with a motocross bike with a Harley sticker on the gas tank. And it was basically the, their, their two-stroke dual sport bike from Italy where they started modifying the frame and suspension a little bit to get it a little bit better. That was in the end of 73. Then in 74, 
in August at a track in Illinois called Byron, Illinois, a motorsports park, a guy named Mike Lewis, the Harley van showed up, box van. It was bigger than a box van. It was like a moving van, not a semi, with Harley painted on the side, the race team, the flat track race team truck. And they came out with this bike, two-stroke, with the forks in the back, forks in front and back. I remember at the time I was in, in that class, and I think I got a fourth or a fifth, but this guy, Mike Lewis, won. And I remember my dad talking to Dick O'Brien, who was the chief of racing for all of Harley was there. My dad goes, hey, uh, you know, my son here, he might be somebody you might be interested in. He goes, well, when he grows, maybe. <laughs> I was uh, five foot one. No, I was 4'11", I think, or something like that. So anyway, a year later, I got approached to by the, the production department, not the racing department, to do some testing on these. They made 100, about 100 uh, production models with the forks in the back. And so I did that for a few races and a few test sessions with the bike. And I liked it. I would have been, it would have been nice. The race models were better. I got to do some testing on the actual factory bikes too. They were better than a production bike, but it was a great experience. I only regret two things. I didn't keep the jersey and I didn't keep a copy of the check from Harley for 75 bucks. <laughs> but 75 bucks, that's it, huh? $75 that's, that's for great money. For two, ri- two rides, and uh, I think it was for the month of October of 1975. <laughs> Pretty darn good salary, I would say. Somebody, somebody has that jersey. I don't know what happened. You know, he didn't care about stuff. I sold all my old gear lots of times after the season. And uh, anyway, now I kicked myself. Another question. You've been instrumental in, in, in helping kind of grow this vintage motocross scene. Mm-hmm. Even going so far as to help create the, uh, so you created this annual Racer X Interam Vintage Motocross at the Hawaii Motorcycle Club here in Boise. Yeah. How have you seen that, you know, race grow in the recent years and kind of that whole vintage movement? Um, why do you think that's so? Well, I tell you what, it's an amazing thing. I, the reason that the race started is that I got a hold of the bike that I used to race back in high school, the Monarch. I was a factory rider for them. In fact, I had Marty Smith's bike after he left Monarch. His works bike made its way to the Midwest, and I rode it for a year and then parked it and forgot all about 125s made in Europe and so forth because the Japanese invasion, the bikes were just so much better and easier to work on. Now, 30-some years later, 40 years later, I was invited to a ARMA race in Chehalis, Washington. It's like a nine-hour drive. And I said to my buddy, Tim Kennedy, who lives here in Boise, and I said, gee, do you think we could have one here at Oahe Track? I mean, it hosted an interim in 1971 and 72. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, And he said, well, let me look into it. I said, well, do you just let me know what the price would be? And maybe I could get sponsors and help make it happen. So we did. We had the first one in 2008, and we had 67 entries. Now, to give you an idea, the last one we did last April had 700 entries. Wow. 
Unreal. So what, what does that tell you? I mean, people want to go back to those fun years when they were teenagers and riding these bikes. And the fact is that it's very rare in a lot of sports to go back like this and actually ride the equipment that you had in the same smells and sounds and look and so forth. It's just a, and everybody has their era, whether it's the seventies or the eighties or the nineties. I mean, right now bikes from the eighties and nineties are just exploding. It's relatively easy and inexpensive to get into it. I mean, a new motocross bike's a lot of money, but a vintage bike, you pick one up for a couple grand, it becomes a labor of love in many ways to work on it again, just like you did in the garage. I mean, you know, I always feel like my dear departed dad is on the other side with a pit board when I'm on the track. You know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's an uncanny feeling. That's all. Yeah, we've talked to them about that where, it, you know, with a vintage crowd, you're not selling them a motorcycle or parts. You're selling them a memory, just as you described, Scott, where yeah. you, it's taking you back in time and, and you're reliving that youth. And now you're at a point in your life where you can afford the bike you wanted, where maybe back then you couldn't. True, true. So that paradigm has changed a little bit over the years. Definitely. So we're just seeing it all over the country, these these series and events that are that are coming up and no real signs of a slowdown. It's just that as the groups age, the bikes have moved from a lot of seventies bikes to more eighties and and nineties. I mean, it's kind of weird for those of us who have been in it a while bikes from nineties and even 2000, well, they're 22 years old. And I consider those to be very modern, but to other people they go, man, that thing's 20 years old. Speaking of bygone eras, Scott, I, I, I have to ask you, because you're the monarch historian. Right. Um, you know, what did monarch do in the 50s and 60s to kind of shape motocross? I mean, it, it was, they were one of the founding brands winning, you know, 500cc championships back in the day. Well, back in the 50s, when they, when they won their world titles at the late thing, I mean, the monarch made street bikes, but there was this group of guys in the engineering department that, that loved that love motocross in Sweden. So they they built about nine or 10. There were only about nine or 10 original monarchs from that era that competed and they, they won a couple of titles. But that same bike, they changed the color on it. And uh, because Monarch decided that corporately, we don't want you guys wasting your time on this anymore. They backed out of sponsoring then they changed it and put a different gas tank paint job on it. And it became, um, wasn't the Husky, but... The Lido. Uh, the Lido, I'm sorry, yes. So then fast forward though. So Monarch still made mopeds. They were like general, they were like general electric over there. They made stoves and boats and bicycles and all sorts of, radios there were monarch radios and tvs even they were badged with that but they still had some motorsports going then it's kind of interesting but in sweden they passed a law that said you couldn't race motocross with anything bigger than 50 cc so in order to develop riders in the sport in sweden monarch came up with making some 50cc bikes that were modified 
to race motocross in what they called uh, the Swedish translation is Kineta cross, which means kids cross. So they actually developed the first monarchs were basically street bikes with press frames that they put knobby tires on and did some suspension work and actually developed kids motocross in Sweden. And then the following, maybe maybe 1968, they were able to develop this bike, which was just like the Monarchs we race now, the same frame sizes with large wheels, 21-inch front wheels, 18-inch rear, but it had a 50cc Saks engine in it. And it was very popular in Sweden to go on and race. And that's how they developed a lot of riders and a lot of talent by doing that. And then in Europe, 125 two-strokes were really not popular. There wasn't really no a motocross class for 125s that early in the sport. It took the wildfire of the United States where the 125 went absolutely crazy with, with AT1 125s and Suzuki TMs and, and uh, Yamaha MX100s and 125s. That made Europe really get excited about motocross 125s. And then later they started the World Cup of motocross and then it became a full-on Grand Prix class in 1975. So much moto history there, Scott. <laughs> wow, we could go on and on for hours on these subjects. I know, and- I know. So I, I, whatever you want to ask me, you ask me and I'll just answer it the best I can. Well, I wish we had a little more time today, but that's about all we have. And we definitely want, want to extend an open invite for you to come back again next year because we, we have way more things we want to talk about with you, Scott. But okay. uh, anything else we want to you want to share with our listeners uh, before we wrap up this episode? Oh, well, I just want to share with the listeners how, that, um, how much all of us love the sport of motocross at, at Racer X and, and in our industry. And it's just been a blessing for me to take something that I had no clue what I wanted, what, what I wanted to do in life other than race motocross during high school and turn pro. And I was able to do that and have a little bit of success. But it's just the idea of how lucky we are to be involved in the sport that we, we grew up with and loved. And um, anything that we can do to nurture and help people and keep this thing going is just a, a wonderful thing that we should all do. And thank you for having me on the show. We appreciate everything you do, Scott, and uh, appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. Thank you again to our guests for being with us today, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you have a moment, please rate and review us. We really appreciate it. Make sure you're also following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and visit pitpassmoto.com where you can check out our blog. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to Tommy Boy Helverson, Chris Bishop, producer Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. I'm Dave Selecki. And I'm Dale Spangler. See you next week. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. 
Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Colby Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network.